Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. So there are a number of different convergences that are happening in the world today. As developing economies adopt rich world technologies and institutions, and as developed economies slow down, there's first an economic convergence between the rich world and the poor world, in which all nations are converging upon a common level of development. There's another kind of convergence around technology. As technologies are developed to fill every niche, and as high-tech, biotech, nanotech, and clean tech cross from one domain into another, there's also this coming together where they're crossing domains into some kind of convergence. And there's another kind of convergence that I really want to focus on here, which is what I've written my book about, Convergence, the Globalization of Mind. People the world over are converging upon a common set of global challenges, tracked through common institutions, communicated across common mediums, and experienced through a common emerging global civilization with which many of us are coming to identify. And to get a feel for this subject, I want to begin with a really simple visualization. So if you all could just close your eyes and focus on whatever it is you focus on when you meditate your breath, or your body, and the sensations on the surface of your skin. Just notice your present experience. And you can imagine that you are in space, deep space, looking upon the earth. It's a luminous blue-green orb swathed in swirling white clouds, solitary sphere hanging in darkness. It hovers 
still, stark, desolate, upon a background of radiant blackness. You're there feeling the earth from this distance, looking in on it. And our view from the earth is increasingly Olympian, as in the Olympian gods. From the middle stratosphere, the mountains ripple like waves across a sea of land. Sweeping vistas spread like patchwork from aloft the clouds. Woodland, valley, summit, and plain. The blue-green hills awake. Just feeling this presence through a kingdom of clouds and heavenly billows, the living air is reverberating with activity from beneath. This is our world with all of its wonders and implicit worries. Just notice the sheer mass, the fullness, the weight, the dimensions of the earth. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. This was really simple. Perhaps the most interesting element of this sketch is that I can conceive of it at all. How is it that someone who's never been to outer space can speak in poetic prose about the experience? And how is it I entrust that many of you are going to respond to this? To Homer, writing in the 8th century before Christ, the world was an enchanted sea of gods and goddesses, mysteries and monstrosities. To the ancient Hebrews, it was a hollow terrain of adversaries that... God might command the extinction of and then glorify in scripture. The Greek Hesiod spoke of a goddess named Gaia that personified the earth, but this was not at all the same earth that we're now seeing. The world has become far more complex, fertile, and teeming with life. We just know so much more about the world now that when we conceive of it, it's something very, very different than has ever been experienced historically. The information age bestowed upon us a great gift for which we seldom express our gratitude. And that's this capacity of ordinary people to experience the world as one integrated whole. It's meaningful to us. Global consciousness is a relatively recent historical phenomenon. The capacity to survey the planet and all of its living color and vivid detail would have been impossible for any but the most visionary geniuses of ages past. Blocking their path would have been vast gaps in knowledge of the people and places of the planet, gaps that could only be filled with immense leaps of the imagination or the formal extensions of logic that got us to some universal abstraction. But we're not dealing with universal abstractions now. It's a real world before us. These substitutes for genuine knowledge often signified great leaps in the evolution of human consciousness. Yet they tended to be interwoven into prejudices and distortions that characterized so much past understanding of the world. So even the finest philosophy of ages past, Plato's Republic or Rousseau's State of Nature or Hegel's Philosophy of History, they just bubble over with speculations and the whitewash of the imagination. So, you know, Hegel could write about the Chinamen and Hindus and Muslimmen and savages. And, and these first arose out of the darkness of the Western unconscious mind. They appeared more as exotic apparitions than real people. Their needs and aspirations were as unknown as they were unstudied. 
And we've now had several hundred years, and particularly several generations, of exponentially mounting information and studies. We're beginning to inhabit one known world. The internet, cell phones, and affordable air travel have made contact across the planet much simpler. But an increase in the number and size of global institutions has also made those contacts a necessity. Global institutions everywhere are growing in prominence. You've got the NGOs, the multinationals, alliances and associations. You've got rising aid, trade, and migration as well. And this is allowing more and more ordinary people to become functional citizens of the world, able to work and flourish in strange and distant lands. I was just in the Middle East. I visited the Yazidi refugee camps outside of Iraq where they were targeted for genocide. And these, these people regularly immigrate through Turkey, through Germany, through Sweden. They've got family in America and in Canada. And it was the same in the West Bank and Palestine. These people have families spread across the world. The US, France, Belgium, Canada, also in the Arab states, they've got family that might be in Lebanon or in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia, working, going to school. It's just incredible. It's, it's, it's not just happening in the Western world. An increasing number of journals, websites, television networks, and citizen groups are challenging us to think globally. So the conversations about the state of the world are becoming more informed and relevant. When you have relevant conversations, what you talk about tends to matter a lot more. You get a little more caught up in it. You think that you might be able to make a difference. And when you start thinking you can make a difference, you start identifying a little bit with the subject matter. I'm taking this identification to be good now. I know there's a lot of Buddhists here, so identification with things usually isn't good. But this is an expansion. And uh, it's an expansion that involves a lot of letting go of, of uh, weaker identities that uh, keep us tied into uh, things that have, we have much stronger reactions around. An increase of planetary threats like global warming, nuclear proliferation, pandemic disease, terrorism, the destruction of the rainforests, the death of the oceans, the global drug trade, they just go on and on and on. These major global issues that aren't just for liberals, they're conservative issues like terrorism and the drug trade. They're challenging concerned citizens and politicians alike to think globally or to become irrelevant. Now, so far as we know, humans are the only animals that think globally. I sometimes have my doubts about Flipper and Lassie. They might be able to pull it off. But uh, we're the only animals that band together in global associations. We're the only animals who possess the power to instantly destroy the planet. I think there's something really here with this ability to just destroy the planet, maybe not in an instant, over the course of hours uh, through nuclear weaponry that does a lot to get us thinking about the planet being the, the nexus of, of our main concerns. It took thousands of years of human civilization before we began to build comprehensive global institutions. While those institutions are but a century or so old, they're now commonplace. In fact, it's become difficult to conceive of a lasting human civilization without the support of global institutions. It's really phenomenal. We're, we're, we're stuck with this. But to run those institutions, we have to be able to think globally. And, and most of us don't do a very good job of this. 
Global consciousness is the capacity to experience the world as an integral whole. The ability to think globally itself is it's quite common now. You turn on any major news channel and you'll be barraged by global events. And to understand these events, you have to situate them in global causal chains. So as the Arab Spring arises, we have to know something about, well, they experienced some kind of colonialism over there and they had a lot of dictators and the Islamists challenged the dictators and it didn't work out really well. And so now they're trying democracy because that's worked pretty well in other parts of the world. And, and, and that, just that background understanding allows us to hook into the world in a way that we might never have been able to do as events are occurring all over the place. Most people in the developed world today more or less possess this capacity. Uh, but global consciousness is not just about seeing the world. It's, it's a way of identifying, like nationalism and team spirit. The globally conscious self identifies with the world and its multitude of beings, human and otherwise. The sense of identification need not be strong. Marketers can talk about saving the planet in order to get us to buy some product. Uh, it, it can appeal to something very base in us. Uh, but global consciousness can also seep into the deepest reaches of our being, stirring feelings for peoples that we've never met, places that we've never seen, even species that we haven't discovered. We'll feel for them, we'll worry about them disappearing, and we don't even know that they exist. We don't even know what they are. And the image of the planet has, for many, bypassed the flag as a symbol of allegiance. The story of how we became conscious of the world as an integral whole, how our lives were knit together, in a planetary civilization, and how some of us began to identify with all of humanity and with the fate of the Earth is the story of global consciousness. The story begins with mundane developments, more accurate maps, more frequent exchanges, more rapid communication, increasing travel, wars, migrations, even standardized measurements. Microdevelopments at the margin tied us together, strand by strand. Now we've reached this tipping point. In order to live well in the world, we need to possess some comprehensive awareness of planetary civilization. Maybe we don't have to, but this sense that we, we understand the forces that are impinging on our lives, that I understand that my, my clothes were made all over the world and that the people who made my clothes, they, they matter and they went through some process in factories and they're either developing or they're stuck. Uh, to not understand these things is to kind of be alienated in the world, to, to, feel, to feel apart, like an immigrant uh, that doesn't speak the language in a foreign country that doesn't have a community around them. Humanity is faced with an array of global challenges and we're ill-equipped to handle them. We lack the global institutions through which they might be solved and these institutions are lacking because most people put the needs of their own groups first. While the great challenges of the 21st century are largely global, few people think of themselves as global citizens, and few bring the same balance and maturity to global issues that they do to more national concerns. When we start thinking globally, we tend to get apocalyptic. It's, it's like we see the world, it's like, oh my God, the world might end. And, and it's a strange way of thinking. We're not, really, we're not balanced, we're not thinking, okay, there's like, 10 major global issues and we have so many resources to deal with them and which are the priorities. 
We do this with national issues a lot more, and we, we just haven't gotten there with the global issues. The world is just simply too vast and overwhelming. Making sense of it requires greater knowledge. We have to know more things, greater empathy. We uh, have to feel for more different kinds of beings and peoples, and greater ethical commitments. There's just a lot of different things to commit to in the world. The process might best be described as the globalization of mind, and it's just getting underway. The process of becoming globally conscious is like gaining new senses. And perhaps we can get a sense of this by looking at the case of the first people whose cataracts were ever treated. Annie Dillard relates that when doctors first learned to treat cataracts, they ranged across Europe giving sight to the blind. Many of their patients had been blind from birth, which I don't understand. I always think of cataracts as being this thing you get when you're older, but apparently you can get them from birth. I'm just going to go with her because it's just such a wonderful metaphor. So I hope she's right, and I read it right. <laughs> uh, but it became possible to study for the first time the experience of, of new sight. And one might imagine that the first glimpse of the world would be miraculous, this stream of dappled light and flood of colors like in the paintings of Monet or like in a lucid dream where everything becomes alive and magical or I often think of this could be like the healings of Christ and all of a sudden someone can see and the lights are turned on and instead it was often a nightmare. Uh, the people who were blind and now could see saw the world in grotesque distortions that were often terrifying to them, certainly confusing. Dillard relates that prior to receiving their sights, the patients would tongue objects and roll them around in their hands to get a sense of their form. And little changed when the lights were turned on. For many, the experience induced depression and a retreat from the world. One 15-year-old boy even uh, begged to be taken back to the asylum in which he had been living, threatening to tear out his own eyes. But many, of course, embraced the change. And you can just imagine the swimming in the stream of wonder of sight and forms. Our lives are filled with phenomena we are ill-equipped to handle. The information that inundates our brains, the appointments and deadlines that fill our schedules, even the words that our eyes sort of peel from the page, this is all foreign to the biological equipment of humanity, as foreign as sight to the blind. While we may have the capacity to lead functional lives in an information-based economy, the effort wears and strains on us. For our nervous systems did not evolve to live in this kind of world. The human capacity for empathy was never meant to be extended to millions and billions of people and other kinds of beings. The world's become overwhelming and it's revealing its contours as never before. It's like this climactic scene from the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna asks Krishna to reveal his true form. He just does not have any idea what he's going to get. Krishna explodes in a kaleidoscope of forms, transmuting himself into the moon and the stars, the Indus, Indus and Ganges, beginning and end of all things, all the armies of all the world marching off to battle only to meet their demise in the gnashing teeth of time. And like the formerly blind boy wanting to tear out his eyes, Arjuna begs Krishna to once more assume his earthly guise. Immanuel Kant described the sublime as an aesthetic experience of overwhelming and terrifying beauty. The infinite and heaving waves of a turbulent ocean, the boundless 
firmament of the night sky. The sublime is this experience of awe and horror, blissful expansion and spine-tingling wonder. And looking upon the world, taking this all in, we have the opportunity to, to treat it that way. There are a lot of people who are going to retreat into romanticism and terrorism, fundamentalism, apocalypticism. But we're taking the first steps in, into this global consciousness, and it should be miraculous for us. And meditation provides the equanimity and spaciousness that's needed to take it all in. It gives us the ability to rest in the ambiguity of a world of infinite diversity. It gives us the ability to let go of our identities, the things with which we were brought up, and join together in larger, wider groupings of humanity and the community of life. It allows us to appreciate the beauty of new forms of existence, to better adapt to constant changes, and to hold a space for something to emerge that's in the language of William Wordsworth, something far more vast and deeply interfused. But thinking globally will become easier as global interconnectivity increases, as global institutions grow in scope, and as more people are exposed to greater human diversity and devote themselves to solving global challenges. So we're really just bringing to the table one very important piece of the puzzle here with meditation. It's a puzzle whose form is constantly shifting even as we work on it. And this is re just really an exciting time to embrace the future. And thanks so much for the opportunity to share with you this emerging vision. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.